pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you um, for a time in which we are able to gather together and to dive into the depths of your word and to consider what your word proclaims about the coming of the Son of God. Uh, this is a time in which uh, many in the world focus or at least contemplate uh, Christmas and what it means. We pray that, Lord, by your Spirit, you would call people to yourself as they encounter uh, the Son of God come down. Um, Lord, would you be with us? Uh, would you instruct us uh, to the glory of your name? In Jesus' name, amen. So as you likely know, uh, over the next month or so, um, the plan is, by God's grace, to go through and examine the Incarnation. Um, why teach on the Incarnation? Uh, well, the timing fits, right? I mean, it's Christmas. Um, this is a time in which a lot of people focus on the birth of Christ. It's celebrated and so forth. Um, and the view the world takes is, oh, it's a neat Bible story, Right? Uh, but what we must realize, and I'm sure all of us probably do, is that the Incarnation is not just some neat Bible story. Uh, the Incarnation um, is actually the very climax of history, as it were. Um, if you want, we can take a look. We can turn over to Hebrews 9.26. This is what I think we ultimately see there uh, in that passage. Uh, the second half of the passage there we read the following, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested. That aspect of manifestation is certainly talking about the Son of God coming in the flesh. He has been manifested um, to put away sin. And so what I found interesting there was this particular phrase, consummation of the ages, and what this is ultimately conveying um, and many commentators uh, point this out, is that it's as if this is the climax of history. Um, the closing of one age, if you will, and the ushering in of a new age. Uh, the coming of the Son of God uh, in the likeness of human flesh. And really, this is something we see even in the world, right? In the world, uh, how do we keep time? Right, it's we say we refer to it as oh, that's BC, that's AD, or this is BCE or CE, right? And what is it centered around? Christ, the coming of Christ. Uh, but there's also another uh, thing to notice in this verse: the purpose. The Son of God breaking into time wasn't purposeless, uh, but um, it was to put away sin, as we read. And so, with the incarnation, what we see. Um, or what we hopefully, it speaks volumes essentially about our condition. Um, it shows us just how depraved um, and lost man is. There was no way to close that gap, no matter how many things we tried to do, work-wise, right? Or if we tried to work our way to God, there's nothing that could be done to close that gap. And so what we see is that we are so separated from God that it required the Son of God to come down in order to put away sin. Um, and therefore, we have to see that the incarnation of Jesus Christ um, is absolutely essential and foundational, fundamental to Christianity. If there's no incarnation, if the Son of God has not come down, uh, there's no Christianity, and more importantly, uh, there's no salvation, right? Sin has not then been put away. 
Um, and so it would behoove us uh, to deepen our understanding of the incarnation um, and to marvel at this glorious mystery. And it's this mystery that we even read of, right, in Paul's letter to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. What is that mystery? He who was revealed in the flesh. Uh, this mystery has certainly now been made known. We're aware of that. But in many ways, it remains incomprehensible that God became man in order to reconcile man unto himself. That is truly remarkable, that God would do that, that, he would, that the Father would send his Son, but not only send his Son, but the Son willingly, willingly came down for that very purpose. This is the very power of the gospel. Um, there's another reason to study the incarnation. It really has to do with the building up of our faith, making sure that we are sound in these things. This isn't just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but what we must realize is that there are many heresies that abound in the world related to the incarnation. Uh, there are many that point out saying that they deny the supernatural and therefore deny this, the, the virgin birth. They deny the deity of Christ. Um, what they will usually admit is they believe that Christ was a good historical person, a good figure, a good man, and the primary example of really just how we should live. He was a good moral being. Um, but this is simply not what Scripture teaches us. What we see in Scripture is ultimately that Christ is the Son of God, and he came to save people from their sins. He is fully God and fully man, and we must be built up and solid on that fact, lest our faith be shaken. Um, and so that's what we're going to be focusing on, is really examining the Scriptures and seeing what the whole totality of Scripture says in regards to the Incarnation. Um, you know, you could start with the incarnation and really, you know, start in the Gospels and look at the incarnational accounts and so forth. But um, I always ask the question, how did we get there? How did we get to this point where God has come down? Um, and so that's why what we'll end up doing here is spending some time looking today at Old Testament, at the Old Testament foundation for the incarnation. Um, the next week, we will likely spend time looking at incarnational prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the, the, the coming of the Messiah. And then after that, we'll spend weeks at the, in the New Testament reality. Um, so today, the way I see this breaking down, just to kind of, um, you know, help you kind of like guide your mind, is we'll look at the definition of the incarnation just to make sure we're all on the same page as far as what we are referring to when we say incarnation, right? Uh, we probably all understand that, but it's worth at least just touching on. Then we'll look at the nature of God's relation to his creation, just briefly. Um, and then we'll really kind of dive into more of the foundation from an Old Testament perspective um, and, and look at type-anti-type pictures, um, specifically of Adam to Christ, um, of Theophanies and Christophanies and so forth, and what that foreshadowed. Um, and then we'll look at um, an aspect two of the tabernacle as well, Lord willing, if we have, if we have time. So along that line then, 
when we refer to the incarnation, um, uh, what is the what is the incarnation? How should we understand what this word um, is referring to? God becoming man, right? Where do we see that in Scripture? Like, I mean, expressly laid out. Philippians two. That's one place, right? He came. He he he. Uh, you know, took on human uh, likeness and and came in the in the likeness of men. But I'm thinking specifically John one fourteen, right? There we specifically read, and the word of God, or the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Um, and we see in John 1 1 that the word is identified as being with God and being God. And so what we understand is when it refers to the word becoming flesh, this is very um, this is you know driving us towards that picture of Christ having come down, the second person of the Godhead. And this is ultimately what we see, right? This revelation surpasses all other revelation. This is the supreme revelation, as it were. It's not that the others are of no value, right? But it's this is the revelation, the supreme revelation of God. And that is ultimately what we see conveyed in Hebrews 1. right? Hebrews 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us uh, in his Son, um, and it is in his son that he has more fully even revealed himself. And so here in the incarnation, as we have said, we have, um, you know, God come down. Um, um, and uh, in uh, flesh. So I think we're all, we're all pretty clear on, on that understanding, right? Um, Next is the Trinitarian nature of God and his relation to the creation. Now, we're not going to go like super in-depth in regards to the Trinity, but what I want to look at in regards to his relation is, God, why does he become incarnate? Why does he send his son ultimately? To be a sacrifice, as we said, to, um, to put away sin, Right? But I think this is ultimately bound up in the very nature of God as he desires um, to relate and be personal with his creation, uh, to be with them, to interact with them. Um, And so there's three aspects to look at in this regard. So we have uh, just point two, nature of God. And here's how I think that we can look at this. One is transcendence. I don't think I spelled that right, but what is meant by transcendent or that God is transcendent? What are we referring to there? Beyond the norm or above? Yeah, he's above. Um, um, he is beyond, right? Right. Another aspect to look at, right? This, go ahead.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. But another way that we can refer to his nature is that is is one of eminence. What is referred to when we speak of eminence? Not authority. Eminence would refer to... Um, yeah, he's indwells. He's in his creation uh, working. So he is... Um, um, you know, he indwells. Uh, he is in uh, his creation. Now, it's important to understand that if we were to only have... A transcendent God, right? What would we be dealing with? Deism, right? We would only be dealing with deism. And if we only had a God who was eminent, what would we be dealing with? Pantheism, right? Bavink says this, he states that a merely transcendent deistic God and a merely eminent pantheistic God leaves no room for an incarnation of God. Uh, the reason being is that he is either totally separate from his creation or he is completely in his creation and has lost all semblance of himself. But we don't serve a God who is merely transcendent or merely eminent, or I would even say a God who is only both of these together. We serve a God who is also uh, concomitant. What is this idea of concomitant? You know, what does that convey? That's right, together with or accompanying, right? So he's uh, together uh, with and accompanying. So what's interesting is that what we ultimately see here is the same idea of the Emmanuel picture. God with us. And this is the very nature of God. He is certainly other, he is above, he is beyond, and he is in, but he is also with. And that is ultimately what we see uh, you know, throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, from new to old, Genesis you know, to Revelation and so forth, we see not only a transcendent and eminent God, but a God who is with his people. Sure. He is not the trees, exactly. right? right. So um, he but he is, right. But he is in working in his creation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's good. And if you think about what's that? What's that? Absolutely, and that's what we're hoping to eventually walk through in regards to the Old Testament and show that forth. Um, and so, if you think about it, even from a Trinitarian aspect, the Trinitarian nature of God actually enables or allows for the communication of himself in the incarnation. 
Uh, it is because of his Trinitarian nature, he can remain who he is while at the same time communicating himself, uh, revealing himself to others. Uh, and Bavink, in this regard, states this, only the theistic and Trinitarian confession of God's character, characteristic essence opens the possibility for the fact of the Incarnation. If God were just one, there's, there's no revealing himself. Um, and so we see the very Trinitarian nature of God and the nature as he relates to his creation certainly uh, points to then uh, the idea of the Incarnation um, makes possible um, him coming down and dwelling among his creation. And so having established this and like what John brought up is what we ultimately see is it's not just the incarnation where God is then involved in dwelling with his people, but ultimately throughout the Old Testament, we see um, various type, anti-type pictures as well as Old Testament allusions to the incarnation. And so I want to walk through um, a number of these uh, areas, specifically Adam to Christ as type anti-type, um, as, um, then as the, 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 the theophanies and Christophanies, angel of the Lord picture that we see in the Old Testament, and then finally um, as like, the tabernacle picture that we see. Um, and so um, we can call this third point uh, type, anti-type, um, and the first one is Adam and Christ, or the last Adam. I, I know. Oh, you have another one? Thank you. Um, so along these lines, we've had this put up before, but we're all familiar with this type, anti-type breakdown, Right? Up here we have the uh, heavenly uh, reality, right? Coming down this way, right? We have the shadow of the heavenly, right? Down this way, we have the, um, the, the heavenly reality, like, come down. And then we have, across this way, all of the prefigurings, if you will, all of the types and shadows ultimately moving towards the actual anti-type. Okay? What's that? Well, there's a historical movement towards, right, and, and, and a progressive revelation towards those things. So in this regard, as far as Adam and Christ, Adam, in this case, is the type. And Christ, as we know is the anti-type. He's also, as we see in Scripture, referred to as the last Adam. Um, but what is interesting, if we look or if we turn to Genesis chapter 1, and specifically um, verse 28, okay, we know that God created man in his image. He had created um, Adam, and, and, and Eve, and what we see in verse 28 after that is this mandate, or one writer calls it the first great commission. Um, and so it could be a creation commission, creation mandate, however you want to look at it. But what we read in verse 28 is, 
God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, they had, Adam specifically had a responsibility to, uh, rule, to, uh, subdue, uh, really to exercise, uh, kingly authority in the garden. That is where they were placed. And so as Adam, as the head, was the representation of God's sovereign presence and rule on earth. And he had a responsibility uh, to, in a sense, Edenize the world, to expand the boundaries of Eden, uh, as it were, and to rule and to keep that uh, garden sanctuary, which we'll get into a little bit later, um, to protect it, to watch over it. And he failed in this commission, um, this he, he he failed. He didn't do these things. If he would have, he would have picked up on when the serpent came in, right, and was deceiving Eve and so forth. Um, but what he failed to do, by God's sovereign decrees, there would be one who would come to ultimately fulfill, I think, this commission and obey fully. Um, now, before we get to that promise in Genesis three fifteen. What we ultimately see throughout, um, well, we can read Genesis 3.15 since we're there. Let's go to that. This is the first picture of the gospel as it's often referred to. Right here we read, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on his heel. Right. So what we see is no sooner had sin come into the world, that then there was a promise of one to come that was proclaimed. And it is to this one, this seed, right, that the whole Old Testament points to and moves towards. Um, And it's in various forms and fashions. We see it through types and shadows, uh, theophanic and Christological occurrences, and through prophecies. But ultimately what they are all pointing towards is the incarnation, the very coming of the Messiah, But before we look at the promise more in depth, um, I want to consider this commission in Genesis 1.28. We see throughout the Old Testament storyline this creation commission, as it were, being repeated, kind of moving through history. Um, It was given to, um, after Adam, it was given to Noah, Genesis 9, uh, Abraham, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22, Uh, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, what we see communicated to each of these individuals is some form of this very commission that took place in the garden. They were to, uh, we see ultimately the language of blessing, the language of multiplication, uh, being fruitful, to ruling, to possessing like the gates of your enemies and so forth, right? That is ultimately, if you think about it, as we move through, it's like you see it as like, you know, you have Noah, uh, Abraham, Isaac, right? It's moving along and they have this responsibility to still be doing these things and in some way influence uh, the culture around them. They had 
interaction with God, as we will look at even in the tabernacles that were that had come down, that they would set up, right? There was a closeness with God. And they knew, um, they knew the presence of the Lord. The Lord had revealed Himself in a special way to them. And that they should have been doing these very things. But they never attained. What do we ultimately end up seeing is the world influencing them. And them not fully casting out like they were told to. Them taking on uh, the appearance of the world, all the idols that they worshipped and so forth, right? And they continually failed. But what we see is the continuation of this ultimate commission until it's taken up by Christ. Christ takes up this commission uh, in his coming where he will properly subdue. He will properly rule and reign. He will properly put his enemies under his feet. Um, And so that's what we ultimately see from the type and the moving towards the anti-type, even in this commission. Um, Ultimately, the failure to observe this commission and to do this by Adam is what led to sin being in the world. And it is ultimately Christ, by keeping that commission and properly coming to subdue, to rule and to reign and put his enemies under his feet, ultimately fulfills that commission and puts sin out. He did, but ultimately we see him even in his... Remember, there's going to be multiple failures. All of these types and shadows ultimately fail. Um, but he, I mean, think of what he did in, in, as far as his sin, you know, uh, after the flood and drunkenness and so forth. Right? So, uh, no, none, of these guys, none of these individuals, you know, fully ruled and reigned as they should have and exercised authority over in, in perfectness, right? Like, um, and so what we see through the promise, and this is, you know, what's beautiful about that is that there was one to come who would do that. Uh, he would fully subdue, rule, reign, obey, um, but it would come at a cost, right? And that is what we see. Uh, he would most certainly crush the head of the serpent, right? But it would be at the expense of giving his life. And that's what's conveyed by the bruising of his heel. He would give himself, but ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And so this is what we have in the incarnation is the last Adam. Uh, Christ picks up, as it were, the creation commission and fulfills it in its entirety. Um, He obeys where Adam didn't obey. Um, And in this life, what's interesting is that's not conveyed necessarily, right? You see him coming as lowly, humble. Um, It's as if he's being walked all over right? But as we see him now, as we know him now, he is seated at the right hand of God in kingly power, ruling and reigning, um, and putting all his enemies under his feet. And the final point in this regard is the fact that that commission is what he then gives to his disciples. That commission is passed on where he says, go, and, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, we have a responsibility in that commission to be making disciples. Um, early on, it was a command of, of obviously, um, 
uh, you know, growing the, 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 the number of people on the earth and so forth, to, to, to fill the earth, to extend the garden. And that is ultimately what is taking place now as his kingdom is here. His kingdom has come. That's what we've been studying. And we have a responsibility now to carry on that commission and expand that kingdom until Christ returns. But we also have various allusions uh, in the Old Testament to the incarnation specifically. Um, The allusions to incarnation. What we would have in mind here are prefigurings, not of like the types and shadows that we we know, right? Where it's like, oh, Moses was a type of Christ. David was a type of Christ, right? But specifically allusions to God um, coming down and being active in, in, uh, in the Old Testament. Um, where are we at here? What we see um, is that this would have been something that John the Baptist understood. Uh, if we turn to John 1.15... John 1.15 says this, John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. The first start to this verse is pretty clear, um, but many look at this verse as a summation, if you will, the first 14 verses of John's prologue. Um, D.A. Carson even calls it a planned parenthetical remark. Um, So what is actually being said here? Well, by after me, we certainly understand that he's referring to Christ coming after him in time, right? All All four Gospels present that as Christ having come after him. So there's no issue there. Um... But the phrase, he has a higher rank than I, you see, it can be thought that those who come first in time have the superiority, have the higher place. And John makes it very clear uh, that he is the forerunner, um, that he is the one who is proclaiming uh, the Messiah and not to be confused because of his being earlier in time, but ultimately that Christ has the preeminence. He has a higher rank. He is superior But where it gets interesting is in this purpose clause, the for or because he was before me. Um, What we have to consider is what is meant by the word for or before. Uh, In the Greek, uh, the word used here is protos. So a literal reading would be something like, for he was first of me. Um, And it is a Greek word that clearly refers to temporal priority. Um, And when we're talking about things that are temporal, we're talking about time. Um, And so what is John the Baptist saying? What he is saying is something like this. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. In other words, he's superior to me. Uh, For he was before me, both as the preexistent eternal Son of God, but also in time. Uh, And so make no mistake, John John the Baptist understood his role as messianic forerunner, right? Um, But he also had understood um, this 
idea that was pressed upon his conscience that though Christ has come in the flesh after him, that he had actively come before him in time. Uh, Raymond and Voss essentially see this as Christ having been active in his involvement as the angel of the Lord and even as Yahweh himself in the Old Testament. Um, and so that's what I want to look at is where do we see these allusions in the Old Testament? So first we see uh, Theophanies. Uh, Theophanies. And uh, Christophanies. And I group those two together because there are instances in which um, we see just maybe not a specific reference to the angel of the Lord per se. What we see is a man appearing, um, so uh, for example, with um, uh, Genesis 18 and the three men who visit Abraham, right? so along these lines, what we would have here is, um, again, following the, the, the type anti-type, you would have uh, Theophanies and Christophanies, um, angel of the Lord, moving forward to Christ actually coming in the flesh um, in the Incarnation. So why is this a type? Well, ultimately what we see are manifestations in the Old Testament of God having come down. That's the key. Um, God having come down or him intruding into time. And so what do we see with these? Well, we see them in various forms, right? We see them of a man, right? Genesis 18. Um, pillar of cloud and fire. Um, the exodus out of Egypt and the Lord leading them by the pillar of cloud right, by day and fire by night, and even um, uh, the, the cloud protecting them um, as they cross the sea. Um, and then specifically the angel of the Lord. This is one we've talked about before. Uh, and we see this angel in many different places. Um, but I want to look at references, just, to, just so you guys can jot them down or be aware of the time in which we actually see him having come down in some form. Right, because there's other times where you hear like like Abraham in Genesis 22, where he actually like calls from heaven down. What I wanted to look at is actual forms in which this angel has come down. So, for example, Genesis 32:24, and Jacob wrestling with a man. Right, it doesn't specify in that passage angel of the Lord, but Hosea 12:3 through 4 specifically says Jacob wrestled with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. Uh, Exodus 3.2, in which the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, Exodus 14.19, the same reference of the cloud moving between the Egyptians and the people and the Israelites crossing the sea. We also see present there the angel of the Lord moving between them as well. Brian, yes. Um, so how are you tying it together with incarnation, which I think you said in the beginning had to do with in flesh? Those are not they're not in flesh. So you're not going to have a one-to-one, just like with prophecies too, you're not going to have a one-to-one correlation necessarily. Right? What's that? It, that's why I say the specific point is God coming down into time. It's almost like a, it's almost like a, a picture of a condescension. Of that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, because the incarnation is specifically, right, him taking on flesh. These are still pictures, allusions to, foreshadowings or prefigurings of, you know, ultimately Christ coming down. So we're saying that this is an example of God entering into time in some form, mm-hmm. not fleshly, but ultimately to uh, give a foreshadow to the, the fulfillment of that in Christ coming in the flesh. Yeah, ultimately, you know, when we had these up here, ultimately what it's showing is God accompanying or being together with his people, interacting and wanting to be near his people. Uh, that's what each of these are showing, um, is that that's what he desired uh, and so forth. Does that make sense? Like as far as, cause that's what we're looking at as far as the type, is God coming down in some form um, and even dwelling with, in the case of like Moses on the mountain and so forth, and talking with him. Um, we... I don't know if they would have understood it as... Well, sure. I don't think that they would have known... Right. Yeah, I don't think that they would have known, like, oh, this is representing, like, Christ who is going to come in the flesh. We obviously have that understanding, um, having the canon of Scripture completed, and we can certainly look back and see these various types and shadows and so forth and illusions, right? And use that to increase our understanding of scriptures and really seeing Christ throughout the whole of scripture. Well, I think um, something that I kind of take away from that is what I've studied is, is how in the garden you have the presence of God really being lost with man dwelling in God in this harmony, this peace, and this relationship. Um, and you see God seeking man, as it were, and throughout biblical revelation, revealing himself to them in theophanies, revealing the presence of God. And ultimately, I think from the garden, you see God, uh, the, the greatest manifestation of God, uh, and reconciling in that in, in redemption, how he manifested himself in Christ, right. how he came down, and how the presence of God was ultimately restored you know, with man by Christ's physical manifestation of coming down and revealing to us who God is and Right. And so along those lines, right, like this is what, um, you know, Voss states even regarding the appearing of the angel of the Lord. He says, we come to understand through this the desire of God to approach closely to his people and to assure them in the most manifest way of his interest in and his presence with them. Um, that is what we see in these old, like God wants to be with his people, with his people, with his people. And then you ultimately see that in the coming of the sun. Mm hmm. Yeah. 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 No, that's a good point. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> you know what's what's interesting. 
them too is um, not to overstate how much they knew because I definitely think they knew more than we think. But what's interesting is that right in right in Genesis four, where um, Eve actually is uh, in Genesis four here, where she is uh, giving birth to Cain. You know, it's interesting. Uh, what's interesting to, to that is where they where they're giving birth to their son, their first son, and um, where she says that because there was this promise given to her that. Uh, that her that, that there would be a seed, a strong and mighty seed who would overcome the serpent who had deceived her and Adam in the garden. And you have in the Hebrew where she's, where she's giving birth and she exclaims, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. And, you know, uh, there's uh, the Hebrew with that. It, it doesn't actually say with the help of is not in the actual in the Hebrew, but it just says I and it says that I have gotten a child. It could be it could be stated, comma, the Lord or this person who would overcome or so it could in some sense, you know, there's there's a debate on what exactly that means or how we should take it. But it's interesting that her intentions were probably right, but her timing was off on <coughs> on what maybe she was even expecting to come from her line mm. after that promise. Yeah, that's that's actually supported then by uh, when uh, we look at Genesis 5, at the end of chapter 5 there, uh, you have another uh, passage that supports this idea that um, people were already you know, expecting messianic figure or somebody, a deliverer of some sort, because there, the father of Noah, Lamech, is saying that one is going to come who will give us rest uh, from the land which the Lord, mm. the Lord cursed. So already someone that early on has faith that someone is coming to reverse the curse. Mm. Okay. So, and that is going to be found in a person. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, the final one here while we have... <laughs> I know. <laughs> is the tabernacle. ultimately prefiguring or a type of Christ. Um, what does the tabernacle symbolize? The tabernacle symbolizes God's presence, His dwelling place. Um, you know, Voss adequately states that it, it re refers to an intimate association um, and shows forth God's desire to have a mutual identification of lot between Himself and them. And so what's interesting, this is actually what we see from the very beginning of the garden temple, uh, the garden sanctuary, uh, in which Adam was placed and where God dwelt with them there. Um, what we see in that regard is that um, while the word temple isn't used in Scripture to describe that, we see many things that are temple-related that describe a temple. That, that's how a lot of theologians arrive at that, uh, specifically the language of cultivating and keeping it. But what we see ultimately is, is they are tossed out of that garden sanctuary because of sin. But what we see too then start popping up throughout, let's say, the, the patriarchal period are these informal tabernacles. They would have encounters with God. That's why a lot of the times the places were called Bethel. And they would say this is, this is a house of God. And they would erect a tabernacle um, and, and an altar um, because that is where God had met with them there. 
And what we ultimately see is this progression, if you will, to where then Moses was given a pattern of how to build the tabernacle, the tent that uh, would be in the midst of the camp, that would move with them, right? That then goes to the temple, ultimately, uh, during Solomon's time. All of these show God's desire to be dwelling in the midst of His people and prefigure Christ as the temple. What does He even save Himself? Destroy this temple. Right? And I will raise it up in three days. What we see is in the coming of Christ, Him dwelling. That is the language that we see ultimately in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, the Greek word for dwelt literally means uh, pitched, pitched His tabernacle or lived in His tent among us. And so therefore, it's through the incarnation, um, Him coming in the likeness of men, that we see the desire of God to dwell among His people. And what's interesting is as the church, right, we are the temple of God. Uh, we have many references to that in Ephesians 2, 19-22. Um, it says we are being fitted together into a growing, uh, we who are being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. First um, Corinthians three sixteen. do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? First Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Uh, plenty of references to this temple language. But what we ultimately see is that in the Old Testament, God was present with his people. And then it's fully manifested in Christ, who now dwells in us. Um, so we have all this knowledge, let's say, of the, the incarnation, of Christ coming, of these illusions. How does this ultimately impact us on the day-to-day uh, in our reading or in our praying, in our worshiping, which we're about to go do. It's one thing to have the knowledge and be like, oh yeah, I can show you here and I can show you there. Um, really, what should amaze us is, I think, the, the whole testimony of Scripture 1, from beginning to end, is about Christ. Moving towards Christ. Showing forth Christ. And it should make us more Christ-focused, as it were, even in our reading and our study of the Word. Seeing Him on you know, throughout the pages of Scripture, um, I know for me, it's like, you know, I'll never read these Old Testament, you know, verses the same and so forth. What do you guys think? How do you think this should impact us? Mm. Yeah, that's good. Just in fellowship. Mm. Growing in fellowship with him and growing in holiness because of that. Mm. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty amazing the fact that, I mean, God wants to be with his people. That is truly amazing. That he is not just, as other religions show, it's just some transcendent God out there, no interest, no desire to be with his creation, but God desires to be with us, to fellowship, to commune with us. And that's ultimately through Christ, right? We can now enter into the Holy of Holies and commune with Him. Um, It's truly amazing. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, go to worship.